0: Father, thank you for the time you've allotted us to open your word. And you know, as it was mentioned earlier, we have so many freedoms and so many privileges and, and, and forgive us when we take them for granted and we forget, you know, there are so many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that aren't able just to come to a church and openly sing and praise and worship. And Father, we we have this blessing and, and I, uh, help us, Father, to to take what you have given us, Lord, and and just you know use it to spur us on, Father, towards telling others about Jesus Christ, not you know grow lackadaisical in our faith because it's, you know, so free that we have. It costs you your shed blood, Lord, and death on the cross for our salvation. And so there's nothing really free about it, Father. It's a, it's just a glory and a gift that you have given us. And Father, I want to take a moment and, and I pray for my brother Clarence right now and thank you that he is in the palm of your hand and I pray for the family and for Clarence just for your peace that surpasses all understanding and Lord uh, you know I don't know exactly everything that's going on father but you do and we thank you that that's that's more important than us knowing and we just give him to you and it just be our will and our desire if you would just heal him and, and bring him back home being able to maybe get out today of the emergency, but again, we just place them in your hands. Thank you, Lord. Now we turn to your word. Once again, we we ask you to give us open hearts to receive your word with joy. In thy name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we were continuing um, our study on the life of Christ. It's probably going to take four to six months here. Um, We've looked at the birth of Christ uh, during Christmas, and we took some time and looked at the childhood years of christ which is not a whole lot that were given there concerning christ but we did take a moment there and so we're we're about ready to get into the ministry of jesus christ the age when he turns 30 years old 30 to 33 years old that really encompasses all of the gospels Uh, but we last week we started by looking at the forerunner of jesus christ we're introduced to a man named john the baptist now if you haven't turned there already we're going to be in matthew chapter 3. You'll want to go ahead and turn there. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to continue just this week to look at John the Baptist. Um, A few things you're going to want to keep in mind uh, that we looked at last week concerning John. um, Help us maybe get a better feel for who he is, understanding, you know, what's his purpose, what his ministry is. Um, First of all, Old Testament scripture promised that the Messiah would be introduced with a forerunner. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 and 4, it says, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. The, a forerunner's job, as we looked at last week, was to go before the king. And, and prepare the way. Make the way smooth. The road smooth. Make sure there weren't any you know, uh, robbers and thieves. And they were supposed to alert the towns. The king is coming. The king is coming. And that's what John the Baptist did for Jesus Christ. He was the forerunner announcing the Messiah. The king is coming. The second thing we saw is the forerunner's ministry would resemble the ministry of the prophet Elijah. Now if you know your Old Testament at all, you'll know the prophet Elijah was one of the most Powerful prophets. Um, we like looking at the life of Elijah because, you know, he, he took no prisoners. I mean, he's the prophet who, who took on 400 Baal prophets and, and challenged them to see whose God was the true God. He called fire down from heaven. He condemned the king Ahab and his evil queen Jezebel. And ultimately, at the end of his life, Elijah didn't die, but he was caught up in a chariot of fire and he was taken up into heaven. Well, in the same way we see much of John the Baptist's life is the same. He is a no-nonsense prophet. He told us as it was. His message was direct. It was powerful. Whether he was talking to a king or to a pauper, he was direct and he was to the point. He spoke the truth. And the final thing, if you remember, Jesus Christ, referring back to John the Baptist, called him the greatest man. That was ever born of a woman the greatest man who was ever born of a woman all those prophets and Moses and and David and again the prophets and the judges all these great men Jesus says there's never been a man like John the Baptist well th- with this in our minds um, let's go back to John or excuse me uh, Matthew chapter 3 John the Baptist is in the region of Judea, as we're picking up chapter 3. He's near Jerusalem. He's probably about 30 miles outside of Jerusalem. People are coming from hundreds of miles away to hear his message of repentance, turning from sin, turning to God. I mean, think about it. For over 400 years, they had been fed the dry, stale bread of the scribes and the Pharisees. And now here comes this man with this powerful message gripping their hearts, not only were the Jews coming out to him, but it says there were many Gentiles that were coming out to him, tax collectors were coming out to him, Roman soldiers were going out to see John the Baptist. They all felt the guilt of their sin, their need for God. They're repenting, and they were being baptized by the hundreds and by the thousands and then suddenly, in the midst of this, this great revival out there by the Jordan River, suddenly in the midst of this revival, John looks up and he sees a group of well-dressed, smug-looking Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to see what was going on. And that's where we're going to pick the story up. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read John, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves that we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Have you seated? Well, the first thing you're going to notice about John the Baptist's ministry is that he forgot to read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence Enemies. Uh, I mean, right, right out of the gate here. I mean, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were the royalty of the Jewish nation. I mean, since Israel didn't have its own political system at the time because they were being ruled by the Romans, you know, they didn't have a dictator, they didn't have a king, you know, these these religious hierarchies gave structure to the nation. And so whenever a Pharisee or a Sadducee came into the room, people would kind of move out of the way, give them the best seat. Men and women sought the company of the sect. I'm not really sure what they expected when they wandered out. And this was no, you know, little journey, hey, I hear down on the corner, you know, something's going on, we got to go see it. I mean, this is a 30-mile, at least, journey for them out to the Jordan. So, you know, I'm not sure what they expected when they take this long jout out to the Jordan River, you know, to, to, to see John the Baptist, you know, baptizing in the Jordan River. Certainly they must have heard of the prophet. They must have heard of his message that he was proclaiming. Perhaps they intended to somehow attach themselves to John. Or at least have John acknowledge their presence, you know, verify their, their importance. Well, he did acknowledge their presence, but I'm guessing not as they expected. Uh, he said in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, you have to catch the the power, the impact of what he was actually calling them. It's a lot worse than saying, hey, you guys are jerks. I mean, he called them a brood of vipers. Literally, he's calling them snakes. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, we're told that snakes were one of the unclean animals that the Jews are supposed to stay away from. Not only were snakes unclean, but anybody who got around them, anyone who had contact with the snake was considered unclean as well. And so this is what John is saying to them when they come out. This is how he greets them. John is telling them that they are defiled, they're polluted, they're unclean. And anyone that they associate with becomes unclean as well because of their presence. I think it's safe to say there goes John's invitation to the synagogue ball. I mean, they're not going to have him there. I mean, you know, he's, he's driving a wedge. I mean, didn't John know what he was doing? Well, the answer is yes. I thought, why is John being so hard on him? I remember some 40 years ago, while I was in college and my master's degree, I asked the professor there how many Jews would have had to accept Christ for him to set up his kingdom. You know, I mean, because they, we know the Jews rejected him. How many of the Jews? I mean, some believed. At least you know, 11 of his disciples believed who he was. What was the number? What, what, what was the cutoff? And he didn't give me a number, per se, But he talked to me about the religious leaders, the religious leaders needing to accept Christ as their Messiah. They needed to influence the people uh, and their need to accept him. I mean, think about it. At at Christ's triumphal entry, you know, when he entered into Jerusalem, all of the streets were lined up with, with the everyday Jews crying, Hosea, here comes the king of the Jews. And They were, you know, treating him as royalty. But when less than a week out of the influence of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, they ultimately cry, crucify him, crucify him. And so I think we can understand why John is going for the jugular vein here. I'm um, here are the people that were going to turn the hearts and the head of the nation. And that's why he calls them what they are and their ministry, what they were doing. I mean, they had that need in verse eight, it says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He doesn't just say, you need to repent. But you need to bear fruit. Evidence of that repentance. Fruit of repentance. You know, well, well, what is the fruit of repentance? Well, very simply put, it's the action that will follow when a heart genuinely turns from sin and to God. In other words, you'll know when someone has repented of their sin and accepted Christ. You're going to see fruit. There's going to be a change you know, repentance is a change of a mind, of change of direction. And so John wasn't looking for some lip service, wasn't looking for them to, you know, to proclaim, oh, we repent. But he wanted the appropriate actions that gave evidence to their repentant heart. I mean, James would put it, faith without works is dead. You know, you need to, to walk your talk. You know, don't tell me, show me, your faith. And that's what he's saying to these Pharisees and these scribes. In fact, I actually want to turn to the book of Luke for just a second. We'll put these verses um, up on the projector in a moment here. Um, In Luke's gospel of this account of John interacting with the Pharisees and the uh, Sadducees, uh, he expands a little bit about what fruits of repentance is. In Luke chapter 3, in verse 10 through 14, And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. He talks here about a heart that is turned from sin and turning to God. It's going to be a loving, sharing, caring heart. You're going to be able to see the difference when one repents of their sin and turns to God. In verse 11, he'd answer them and say, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And the US food just do likewise. In other words, you're not gonna, if you have a repentant heart, if you're a child of God, you're not gonna be able to, you know, see these things that are going out there, and you're not gonna be able to walk away as you have before. Your heart's gonna be moved. That's gonna be the fruit of it. You know, results of a genuine faith, a genuine repentance. He gets specific. He talks about the tax collectors who asked him, you know, what should we do? He says, just do your job unto the Lord. You know, it might not be a popular job collecting taxes. But the tendency of the tax collectors is that if they were supposed to collect $100 for taxes, nobody knew they charged $125 and they could take the extra and pocket it. Don't do that. Just do your job. The Roman soldiers, what should we do? Well, the soldiers had all sorts of power to falsely accuse somebody or to threaten somebody, The powerless, especially the Jews who were powerless before them. And he said, just do your job. You know, that's all he's saying is, you know, don't 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 step across that line. There's fruits of, of repentance. You know, if we're genuinely a Christian, you know, it's not gonna be comfortable for us to do those things that are against what God wants us to do. And the real question is kind of interesting. Why I take us back there is not because it's so much of the specifics that he tells of what each group is, but that the point that everybody has fruits of repentance. When if you're a Christian, when you repent of your sin and you become a child of God, there is something in your life that is going to be able to be seen outside, some change. He wasn't trying to give us a, a grocery list of what the exact fruits are. His whole point is that there's fruit, and there's fruit for you. You know, it, it, you know and we need to ask ourselves, what is our fruit of repentance as we look at our life? Was it is, what is it that John might say to you to do as evidence that you have been genuinely repentant of your sin. You see, the action, the fruit, doesn't bring forgiveness or bring righteousness. But if one has genuinely repented, that's the production of the fruit. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Christ and said, What must I do to be saved? In Luke chapter 18. Let me read the verses for you here. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasures in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So again, he was a man who was very moral. He wasn't a believer. He wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. Basically, he had been kept keeping the Ten Commandments up to this time. Even him, once he re- would repent, it's going to be seen by the outside that his fruit of repentance would have been, because he was a rich man, and obviously it, it seems it was, Look in Matthew where he's talking about you know seeing the hungry and feeding them or clothing them and walking away. He'd probably walked away many times. And the difference was now he's going to suddenly see people differently. And that was what his fruit of repentance was. So you see the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they they were very much like people here today. Like people who are sitting in this congregation. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees were very much into religious symbols and external looks, making sure they had their boxes you know, checked off, you know, that they had the right motions, external things. But the problem is they didn't have the heart. Very much into religious systems. They were very much into things that could be duplicated externally, where God is talking about something happening internally, in, in our hearts. In their days, during the scribes and the Pharisees, they had things like circumcision. They had the law. They had the sacrifices. They had their prayer life on standing on the corners. They had their family heritage. He said in verse 9, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I mean, we were the Jews. We're, we're the chosen people. John the Baptist could easily just become another external format. You know, coming out, associate with John, go through the baptism. Anyone could duplicate it. But God wants so much more. God wants more than numbers. God wants more than bodies in the church. He wants people that are committed to reaching the law. He wants people who are committed to making time, lots of time for God, who have entered into that relationship. God wants more than us just to take offerings and, you know, drop money in a basket. He cares more about your genuine giving, you know, caring hearts, you know, looking out for each other. God wants more than A structure an organization you know we have sunday school and abf and worship and you know our kids club and our prayer he wants more than structure he wants the church he wants us to be a living breathing organism you know something deep within this this all comes fruit from fruit of repentance as individuals that fruit is going to be different but there is going to be fruit for everyone here who has genuinely repented To one it may be sharing and and caring and giving towards others. To another it might be testifying of Jesus Christ at our workplace. And yet others might be that burning desire to minister and to go into ministry for Christ. You know the question you need to really look at is what is your fruit? Because if you look at your life and you don't really see any fruit, then the question comes, is there repentance? You know and if there's not, we need to go back to square one. We need to see ourselves as sinners, see our Savior. And, folks, there is a real urgency to all of this. You know, John said in verse 10, he said, The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, I mean, it, it's ready. The axe is right there. It's not like God is just talking about, well, someday I'm going to go do this, it's there. He says now is the time, now is the time for repentance. This so reminds me, if you think about it, about the judgment that was passed on Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel chapter 4, remember great, you know, great king Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the Babylonian king, he was mighty, he was wealthy, you know, pretty soon he began to look at himself and say, man, I got it all together, I'm such a great person, and he became very puffed up. But then God gave him a dream. And in that dream, God basically said he is going to lay him low. And it says in Daniel chapter 4, let me read those verses for you. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 24, this is the interpretation. So Daniel is coming to interpret the king's dream. It says, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king. That you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of the heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows on it whomever he wishes. And then Daniel adds this, down to verse 27. He says, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and turn from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. He makes it very, very clear. You know, God wants to see a change. Repent. You know, and and that's what God's call is to each and every one of us. Our true repentance will be seen externally by everybody around us. It's something that cannot be hidden. And Israel's religious leaders... They had likewise become very smug, very puffed up, very pious in their faith, very comfortable in their faith. And you can almost feel the burning within John as he is standing toe to toe, you know, with these hypocrites. I mean, in verse 11, he says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. Let me add a little little bit here what he is saying in this whole context here. Basically, he's saying to them, you may not fear me. You may think of me as a simple prophet. I'm not well-dressed like you. You know, I'm not. people don't clear out and clear the path when I come. You might consider me odd. You might consider me a little bit extreme. I baptized you with water for repentance. But he goes on, he says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I mean, literally, he may, he's saying, you may not listen to me. I'm baptizing with water. But he said, there's one coming after me. There's one who stands behind this message that is mightier than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoestring. He's going to come. He's going to baptize you with fire, with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the one that's testing you. Folks, uh, this is probably the best picture I can find of this. Go ahead and put this up. Here, here's John the Baptist. You know, he's he he's saying I might be a little cub, but who look who stands behind me in my message. And I gotta say, as a pastor, I feel like this a lot. And I preach and I preach, and people sit there and they listen to the messages. And you know I may mean, think, it's just his message, it's just his opinion. You know, he's got his thoughts. That's great you feel that way. But all along, there is someone who is standing behind the truth of the word of God. There is a power that's coming. You might reject me. You might reject John the Baptist. You might reject the apostles. But there is a Savior. There is a God who stands behind all of this that we are teaching, all of this that we are looking at. And he is the power behind it. It's not in the man. It's not in John the Baptist. You know, as mighty as God said he was, you know, John said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. But the power of Jesus Christ stands behind these words. It goes on in verse 12. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his thrashing floor and he will gather his weed into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fear. There's such a powerful visual here and, and we don't catch it. Because, you know, we have technology that separates the wheat and the chaff. And, you know, you see the 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 pickers out in the corn, you know, and instantly it separates all the bad stuff from the good stuff. But it wasn't like that in the day of Christ. They'd go out there and they would collect the the, the sheaves of wheat. And then those sheaves of wheat would be beaten against a rock or something hard. And so all the fruit would fall off. But there was still these these this chaff that was kind of, you know, um, around the kernel of fruit and you didn't want to these things are small i mean there's hundreds of thousands of them to sit there and pick them out you didn't do that so they had a winnowing fork and what it would do is they would on a breezy day they would take it and they would throw the grain in the air and uh, the chaff is meaningless it's worthless it's light and it would blow away but the fruit is what lasts. The fruit was heavy. It was sustainable, and the fruit would just keep falling down. And they'd keep you know, putting it to this test, throwing the wheat into the air, and the shaft would all be carried over there, and the fruit would basically be separated. And then they would take all that chaff, and they would take it, and they would burn it. They would, they would dispose of it. I believe that fire spoken of verse 11 there isn't just the fires of hell that he's talking about. But there are the fires and the trials that accompany one's faith with god mean, proverbs chapter 17 verse 3 says the crucible for silver and the furnace for the gold but the lord tests the heart i mean you think of how many people have claimed forgiveness of god how many people claim to be a child of god but when their faith is tried they easily turn their back and when they get out in public and and their friends laugh at them do a little bit of mocking. You know, that they go to church or whatever it might be and it's, you know, they just kind of pull away. You know, when questions arise that they maybe can't answer, they pull away. Or when God doesn't do what they think he should be doing, you know, they pull away. You see, God is testing hearts today and he will one day test them at the judgment seat of Christ. There, all the external symbols are going to be blown away. All the external things that we hold on so much that that we identify with Christianity. Only those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit will be left. The rest will be baptized with fire. You see, anybody could duplicate John's baptism. That was external. But no one can duplicate a life that is baptized by the Holy Spirit. That life is going to have fruit of repentance, fruits of righteousness, a true repentant heart, turning away from the world, turning after God. And it's only those who have truly done this, had this baptism, that will enter the gates of heaven. They're, they're only the true ones, not the claimers, only the genuine you know, will enter. The rest, it says the world, will burn. It's very, very simple. God says it. You can write it off to me. You may not believe me. You may think you're smarter than me. You probably are smarter than me. But you're not smarter than God. And God has said what he's going to do. And he's that lion that stands behind, you know, this truth. He's that lion that stands behind what he is going to do, you know, in our hearts every single day. He's going to do these things. And, folks, we really need to hear this message. And, and this is kind of unique for us to, to speak about this in a church setting here. I think we really need to wake up to the reality of what we're involved in. This isn't just nice, oh, I really like you know, coming to church, I really like Colonial, I like the people at Colonial, sometimes I even like the pastor at Colonial, those sorts of things. I mean, it's so much more than that. This isn't a game that we're playing, a club that we belong to. We're talking about eternal souls here. Souls that have been offered forgiveness for their sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. To receive that, there needs to be a repentance. There needs to be a a genuine grieving over our sin, a turning from it, and a following after God. And, you know, looking at John today and looking at this message to the scribes and the Pharisees, it really gives us an opportunity to focus on a dimension of evangelism, a dimension of the gospel that we often neglect. Usually... When we're talking to people about being saved and getting saved, you know, we're talking about those who maybe have not yet heard the message, the gospel, or those who have heard who don't understand it, or those who have heard the message who haven't yet responded to it. But it's interesting here. John's challenge was to the religious here, the religious to search, church, search their hearts to see if they had a genuine salvation, I remember, I have shared this before, I'm not positive in what context, but back when I was in Grand Rapids School of Bible and Music, um, there was, a, there was a, a lady there, she was an ARIA resident assistant, that's where one of the students, you know, usually when they're in their senior year, they're kind of given leadership over either part of their dormitory or their house that they were in, and, and there was a young lady there, and, you know, she'd been raised in a Christian home, Very, very smart, very intelligent, a really, really good student, really a good person. And uh, she had risen, and by the time she got to be a senior year, they made her a resident assistant. And what stood out is that partway through her senior year, she realized that although she had taught other people, she had heard this message for all these years, that she had never actually given her heart to Jesus Christ. And she got saved her senior year at Bible school. You know, many may wonder here. You've been in church. You've been part of this church. Have you ever wondered, have I really do that? Am I genuinely a Christian? Well, the answer to that is to look at your fruit. Do you have evidence of repentance? Not the external symbols of going to the right place at the right time, doing the right things. Not the external things, but a heart, actions that only a child of God can have. Do you look at your life, do you, do you see that, that, that fruit? John knew the seriousness that the souls faced before him. It didn't matter that the Pharisees and Sadducees were, I mean, they were supposedly the re- religious elite. I mean, do we know the seriousness? You know that it's not going to matter how many years you went to church. It's not going to matter, you know, what you did, what you served. It's going to matter your heart's condition and a true repentant heart when you stand before God. And we may be accepted. We, we may not even know because we can't see people's hearts. But Jesus Christ can. And this gives us an opportunity just for us to search the religious, the, those who are following, those who are here, to just ask ourselves the question, are we genuine followers of Jesus Christ or is that something we put on and take off you know on Sunday but on Monday we're something different are we ready to get serious with God are we ready to cast off our dependence on the external things and give our heart to Jesus Christ this is a time for us to search our heart we don't come across passages of Scripture too often that focus on the religious and challenge us of concerning our faith and our genuineness. But this is an opportunity for us to search our hearts. So I'm going to give us a moment. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads if you would. I'm going to give you a few quiet moments just to pray, to seek before God. Again, because, you know, we're talking about people who have been here, people who know the gospel message, you know. You know what God wants you to do. You know, for whatever reason, maybe you haven't done it yet. If you search your heart, that's all I'm asking you to do. Let God reveal it to you. And if it's time, if this is the time and you are ready to genuinely accept Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you know, I'd ask you just quietly pray there and to give your heart to Christ. Father God, I ask you to help anyone here. Help me, Lord, in those areas that I need to overcome my pride. That if I, whatever it is I need of you, that I I wouldn't let my, you know, position or others around me, what they have thought about me or even my claims of the past, that I wouldn't let those come in the way of me doing genuine business with you. My Father, I I thank you that when we open our heart to you that you forgive us. Lord, we have the example of Nicodemus in the Gospels that ultimately came to Christ against all of his other Pharisees, against all of the other religious leaders. He he turned and he repented. And he showed the fruits of righteousness, the, the fruits of repentance. And Lord, I just ask you, to show each and every one of us where our heart is before you. Thank you, God, for just the truth of your message, the power of the message. Thank you for the truth that stands behind your word and the God that stands behind it. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us through your son, Jesus Christ.